We're reading from Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 54 this morning. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, 75 in all, Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfil his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. 
Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to look more closely. He heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses who they rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But the fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honour of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob but it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your father's. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him, 
you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, Chris. One of the longest readings we've had here for a long time. Uh, Just before we get into uh, things and think about that reading and what on earth is going on and why it's so long and those sorts of things, just uh, two things from me. One was um, to say there's a number of our young adults that are not here this morning. Uh, They're serving over at the St. Saviour's St. Nicholas Church Camp looking after the youth at that uh, camp, a bit like uh, Methvin have done for us on our church camp. So please pray for them as they continue to look after the youth there. And the second thing, I was struck by what Andrew said about the there might be some here that were... um, Got to hear Billy Graham. Hands up if you did get to hear Billy Graham at one of his... Yeah, quite a few. That's fantastic. I just don't think the younger ones amongst us today realise the, the kind of... Who, who can think of a time when uh, 40,000, 50,000 people would go and hear someone preach the good news of Jesus like Billy did? So um, incredible ministry that the Lord had through him. Let me pray and we'll um, think a little bit on the, uh, the reading that um, Chris just gave us. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for the joy it is here at St. Stephen's to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, as your sons and daughters, as a church family, to hear your word, to have you speak to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we spend time this morning hearing these words on the lips of Stephen, the man that our church was named after, the man who was about to be put to death for his trust in you, I pray that they would speak to us and that through them we would be encouraged in our walk with you. So please minister amongst us this morning, I ask, by your spirit in our hearts and minds. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you weren't here last week, then some of that reading won't have made sense to you because today is really part two of a two-part kind of series. But I can set the scene for you. Last week we got back into the book of Acts and we were straight into a very intense scene. We were straight into the death of Stephen. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, the first Christian who was put to death for believing in Jesus. And we looked at it in a strange way, because Stephen's death goes on for a really big chunk of the Bible. It starts in chapter 6 of Acts, goes all the way through chapter 7, and it continues into chapter 8. It's a really long section. So we broke it up into chunks that we can manage. So last week, we looked at the beginning and the end. We looked at the chapter 6 part and we looked at the chapter 8 part because they're the narrative parts of this event. They tell the story. It told the story of Stephen being set up and falsely accused. It told the story of Stephen being stoned to death. It told the story of a young man for the first time mentioned, Saul, who was a young man who looked after the clothes of the people doing the murdering and approved of the execution. It told the story of what happened to Stephen being put to death. And it was great. I found it great last week looking at Stephen. Because Stephen put Jesus first in his life. He put Jesus before his own life, literally. It was a shot in the arm to see that kind of example and faithfulness. Someone who said, Jesus comes first. And then if you remember, there was a lovely touch in the episode because Stephen, uh, who's about to die because of his love for Jesus, is granted a vision up into the heavens. Heaven is opened and he sees Jesus, his Lord and Saviour, standing at the right hand of, uh, of the Father as if to welcome him just before he dies. It's a lovely touch that goes on there. But we missed out all of chapter 7 
because all of chapter 7 is kind of the non-narrative part. Because I hope you could pick this up from Chris's reading. Chapter 7 is just one long speech of Stephen's before he dies. Really, really long. Really, really long. I feel like my challenge this morning is to speak longer than Stephen did. Challenge accepted. So let me remind you, so to understand what he's saying in chapter 7 and why he's saying it in chapter 7, you've got to understand what he's accused of from chapter 6. So let me remind you what he was accused of in chapter 6. In chapter 6, it tells us that some men were encouraged to say that they'd heard Stephen speaking words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Now that's interesting in and of itself. I'm not sure you could blaspheme against Moses, but that's what they say. They blaspheme, he blasphemes against Moses and God. Then, after Stephen was arrested, we're told in chapter 6, they got false witnesses who said this about Stephen. This fellow never stopped speaking. If they'd left the charge at that, I think we all would have said, Amen, yes, he never stopped speaking. But that's not what they, where they stopped. This fellow never stopped speaking about against this holy place, that's the temple, and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, do you see what's going on there? Very important. He's accused of speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. He's accused of saying that Jesus would destroy the temple and would change the customs handed down by Moses. That's changed the law. So he's accused of putting Jesus above the temple and the law. That's the accusation. Now, I assume that these charges from the false witnesses were close to the truth because that's the best false accusation, right? The one which is plausible the one which has a ring of authenticity about it. I think this was probably very close to what Stephen was saying, just twisted a bit. So the accusation is, follow this, that Stephen is blaspheming because he's speaking out against the temple and against the law. He's putting Jesus above the temple and the law. Well, then as we pick things up, and Jacob, you're going to have to keep, or Alex, you're going to have to keep up this morning as we're on. We pick things up in chapter 7, verse 1, and the high priest says to Stephen, are these charges true? And then Stephen just lets out this huge long speech. Are these charges true? And this is what he does. So here's my question today. Why does he give this speech? He's basically fighting for his life. He knows his life is in danger and they want to do away with him. And he thinks that this will be a good defense. The stakes are incredibly high. Hard to think how they could get higher. And what does he do? He gives a summary of the Old Testament. His life is on the line, and what does he do? He gives a Bible overview. That's what he does. In fact, it's not even a whole Bible overview. He's pretty selective what he focuses on. And I hope you saw that. He had some certain periods of the Old Testament and the, uh, and the Bible overview that he spoke about, and he ignored other parts. In fact, I just want you to see the three parts that he focused on because that's part of the importance of what he's saying. He talks about three periods in the Old Testament history. So in verse 2, he starts speaking about the patriarchs. Remember, the patriarchs were the founding fathers of Israel. Who's the number one patriarch? Abraham, then Isaac, his son, then his son Jacob, then Jacob has 12 sons, 
and they become the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the first period that Stephen speaks about is the period of the patriarchs. And so he starts speaking about Abraham. And then in verse 8 and 9, he starts speaking about uh, Isaac and Jacob. And then he starts speaking about one of Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph, and the well-known story of Joseph being sold into slavery into Egypt, and then the famine coming, and Joseph getting everyone food. So from verses 2 to 16, it's about the period of the patriarchs. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Then it shifts. It shifts in verse 7, and it moves forward to another period in Israel's history, another period of the Bible. And this is the period of Moses. Again, another familiar one, even for those of us that don't know the Old Testament well, this is another familiar period where there's Moses, when the people of God are enslaved in Egypt, and it's Moses who leads them out through the plagues. And then God gives the Israelites the law through Moses, but the Israelites are breaking it with the golden calf. All this Stephen describes in the speech. And so from verse 17, right the way through to verse 43, he's talking about the period of Moses. So you've got the period of the patriarchs, then the period of Moses. Then in verse 44, it starts talking about the tabernacle. And if you don't know what the tabernacle was, the tabernacle was a little structure that was portable, and inside it they placed the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what that's, that is. The Ark of the Covenant has got the Ten Commandments in it. It's where the presence of God is thought to dwell with his people in the tabernacle. But verse 44 starts talking about the tabernacle, but it quickly turns into talking about the temple. The tabernacle changed, because it was movable, into the temple, which was the same thing. It had the Ark of the Covenant, but it was fixed. It was stationary. So it starts talking about the time of King David and King Solomon, the first kings of Israel. So verses 44 to 47 are about the periods of the first kings of Israel, David and Solomon. So you've got the time of patriarchs, time of Moses, time of the first kings that Stephen focuses on. And then in the last part of the speech, he just kind of explodes, Stephen. So verse 51, he certainly seems to decide, do you know what, the best defense is a good offense. I think I'm going to give as good as I get. And he just unloads on them. And he says, basically, I'm not the one that's guilty, you are. Think about that for a moment. He's on trial for his life, and he just says, I'm not the guilty one, you are. You think you've got me on trial, but you're the guilty ones. So that's what he does in the speech. Talks about the patriarchs, talks about Moses, talks about the the beginning with the kings, and then he kind of unloads on them. How does Stephen think this is a good defense? Are these charges against you true? Blah. Now, what is it about these periods in Israel's history that Stephen thinks clears his name? Clearly, he's chosen these three because he thinks they make a point. They clearly defend him against these accusations in his mind. How? Well, this is where I've got to apologize because it works in a number of ways, this, and the truth is we just don't have time to dig really deep into it this morning because there's too much into it. We can't look at all the different levels of Stephen's speech, and I'm sorry about that because there are, there are deep levels that are going on here. It's brilliant. This is a masterclass by Stephen. None of it's extraneous. None of it's wasted. It all builds his case. Basically, what he says, in a nutshell, is, you're accusing me of slamming the temple and not caring about the law? That's because Jesus replaces the temple and fulfills the law. You're accusing me of putting Jesus too high above the temple and the law? Stephen fundamentally is saying, yep, that's because he is higher than the temple and the law. 
He replaces the temple, he fulfills the law. Now, I can't go into all of it, and as I said, there's lots of different strands. In fact, I'd love to take you through the law strand, because he says, you're, you're saying to me, I break the law, let me give you a little history lesson. And he takes them back all the way to Moses and says, while God was giving Moses the law, and what were the Israelites doing? They were breaking the law by making the golden calf. And while God sent them all the prophets saying, please keep my law, what were the Israelites doing? Putting to death all, the, uh, uh, all those prophets. And he says, you, you, you pat yourselves on the back because you keep the letter of the law. This is in verse 51 and following. Because you're circumcised physically, but your hearts aren't circumcised and your ears aren't circumcised. So he's got great things all the way through here, but I can't look into it. I need to narrow it down somehow. So I'm just going to look at one strand. But I think it's his biggest strand running through the speech. And it's the strand of the temple. They've said, you're putting Jesus above the temple. So he, in this answer, he defends that. He speaks about the temple. Now, why did they get so hot under the collar about the temple? Why is the temple something to get arrested for or possibly executed over? We've got to understand this. You've got to know what the temple meant to these people in order to understand why this was a very good accusation. The temple was Israel's big draw card. This was the place where God dwelt with his people. You want the presence of God? You go to the temple. This was the place you had to come, you had to go to a particular place, the temple, to worship the Lord. If you wanted a relationship with God or to worship God, you had to go to the temple. And so if you minimize the temple, you are minimizing God. And you could be rubbing yourself out of having a relationship with God. To have a relationship with God back then, you had to go to the temple. You had to have the priests do certain things for you. You had to have sacrifices given on your behalf. And all of that took place in the temple. So the accusation is, and Stephen, you're just doing away with the temple. So look at what Stephen says about it in his speech. Can we go right back to the beginning, Alex, of the speech? At the start of his speech, remember he's talking about the period of the patriarchs. And what does he say? Remember, the period of the patriarchs is way before the tabernacle or the temple. Way before. Look at his first line. Brothers and fathers. He says brothers because he's a Jew. He says fathers to show respect to these leaders in the court. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Now, this was a part of the Old Testament every single person listening would have been familiar with. This is the great start. This is when God said to Abraham, the first patriarch, I'm going to take you to the promised land, the land that I will show you. But what's Stephen's point in saying it this way? The land he will show Abraham will be the promised land, the holy land, which means what about verse 2? It means that the God of glory appeared to Abraham in another land. Mesopotamia. Now, do you see the point that he's making straight away? You don't have to be in the promised land. You don't have to be in the temple to have God have a relationship with you and work with you. Didn't with Abraham. Do you think Abraham, this is what he's arguing underneath the words that he's saying. Listen, guys who are accusing me, do you think Abraham had a relationship with God? How? He didn't have a temple. He wasn't in the promised land. God was not only present in one place, only dealing from one spatial location. He deals with his people wherever they are. And that one point he makes in different ways all the way through this Bible overview. Uh, look at verse 9 as he moves to Joseph. 
Verse 9, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. Do you see Stephen's point here? God is with Joseph where? In Egypt, in the very land that is one of the key enemies of the people of God. But God is with Joseph in Egypt. And then God works in Joseph and through Joseph and through Egypt to save all these other nations through the famine. It's the same point. He's not limited to just one land or just one place with a temple. Another example of the same point, the same strand running through it, let's jump to the second period. That's the first period with the patriarchs. Here's the second period. This is the period of Moses. And as Stephen describes what happened to Moses, it's God still working in Egypt. But by the time it gets to verse 29, it's even more explicit. Have a look at verse 29. When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, which is a Gentile land, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed in Midian, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and didn't dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Where's this holy ground? Midian. Not in the holy land but it's still holy ground because wherever God is, it is holy ground. But it's not a temple, it's not a tabernacle, it's not even the promised land. But God is still with his people working in them and through them. He makes this point in so many ways all the way through the verses. But let me give you one more clear way that he does it in the third period. So that was the second one, Moses. Here's the third one. What he does in the third one is he acknowledges that Israel have had a wonderful blessing of the tabernacle and the temple, the place where God symbolically dwelt with his people. But he argues that that was only ever to be thought of symbolically. It wasn't the full reality. It's not like God only dwelt in that one small box or that one bigger palace. You can't box God like that. So he gets into this in verse 46. He says that it was David who first wanted to build the temple for God, the place for God to be. But verse 47, but it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High doesn't live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me? You can hear the kind of silliness of that. Do you see that all the way through the speech, all the way through these three periods, he's saying God has never been bound by the temple. He's not saying the temple wasn't important. He's not saying that it's been uh, a blessing and foundational in the relationship. But he's saying that right from the beginning, right from Abraham, it wasn't limited to the temple. And of course, Stephen doesn't go into the details of it here, but we know why Stephen was happy to say the temple wasn't that big a deal anymore. It's because Jesus replaced the temple. Do you remember the original charge I just said before, leveled at Stephen was, that he said Jesus would destroy the temple. But that wasn't exactly what Jesus said, was it? Some of us will remember the words that Jesus actually said. What Jesus said was, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And what was Jesus talking about there? himself. He was saying if you destroy the temple himself, he'll rebuild it in three days. The resurrection, he'll be, he'll come back to life three days later because Jesus replaces the temple. 
the physical building of the temple is replaced by the person of Jesus because the place where God dwells with people was no longer in a place anymore, a building, but in a person. It was no longer in the Jewish temple, but in Jesus himself. And of course, the good news is, that develops even more in the New Testament. Because the temple, the temple of Jesus, is now gone as well. Because Jesus, after he came back to life three days later, stayed around for a few more weeks with the disciples, but then he ascended to heaven. The temple is gone. But what's the next stage stage of God's progress? He sends the Holy Spirit down on the day of Pentecost and the Spirit now lives within all God's people. And so when I say today, who is the temple today or where is the temple, what's the answer? You're the temple. I'm the temple. We're described in the New Testament as the temple of God. Why? Because God dwells in us. Jesus has done something so powerful and effective in his death and resurrection that God now lives in his people by his spirit. That is incredible. And the blessing of this, of course, here's the the kind of cash value is, it means this is why you know you're never alone. You are never alone because God by his spirit dwells within you. Through the the good times, more importantly, through the bad times. You're never alone because you're the temple of God. This is what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Do you remember the Samaritan woman? Where she said, look, you Jews and we Samaritans, we've argued for a long time about which is the place where you worship God. Because you Jews say it's the temple, but we Samaritans say it's Mount Gerizim. Which one is it? And Jesus says, a time is coming and indeed has come where we will no longer worship the God in a a place, but we will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the truth that you and I live now. You don't have to be in a particular building or a particular country to be close to God anymore. He's always with you. He's always within you. You're always in his hands, whichever way you like to look at it, because all those are true. We worship the Lord here at St. Stephen's as effectively here in Shirley Intermediate as we did in the building on the corner of Emmett Street and Shirley Road. We are as close to God here as we were there. There were perhaps a few more luxuries over there. There were perhaps a few more perks that I hope one day we'll have again, but no difference at all in terms of the location. In June, I have to go to Jerusalem. When I'm in Jerusalem... I will be no closer to the Lord in Jerusalem than I am here in Shirley Intermediate this morning. And that's not because the distance remains the same, it's because the closeness of the Lord with me remains the same. He's with me wherever I am. It's an incredible truth that we are now the temple of God. And can I encourage you, if you've ever had this worry, don't trust your feelings about this. Sometimes we, well, I don't feel like God's in me. Don't trust that feeling. Our feelings are sometimes good and accurate, sometimes they're terrible and rubbish and you don't want to listen to them. Trust what Jesus did on the cross and trust his promise that if you follow Jesus, you have the spirit within you, no matter how you feel. And know that whatever you're going through, you're not alone. It's an incredible truth. So do you see what's going on here? The accusation against Stephen was you spoke against the temple and you can't relate to God without the temple. Stephen goes, sure, Jesus replaced it. He fulfilled its function. Everything the temple did, he's done. You needed sacrifices done on your behalf in the temple. 
Jesus is the sacrifice, the Lamb of God given for us. At the temple, you needed high priests to do things for you. Hebrews tells us Jesus is the high priest who's done everything we need for for us. But back, back there, the temple was the place where you could go into the presence of God. Jesus has brought God's presence to us and then by his spirit poured him into us. And Stephen says it's always been more to it than just the temple. God was never boxed into just one thing. There was more going on right back from the time with Abraham. But now in Jesus, of course the roof has been blown off. There's so much more in the speech, but I hope you can see just from that one strand about the temple how good Stephen's argument is here. I want to. I need to finish. I need to close. I want to finish just with then um, a thought as to why Stephen is so good in this space. I want to encourage us and challenge us from Stephen here. Here's the encouragement and challenge I think we get from Stephen. This guy knew his Bible. This guy knew the scriptures. He knew the word of God. Off the top of his head, at the most stressful period in his life, he gives a Bible overview, which is absolutely unbelievable. But he shows all these different strands and threads of the scriptures coming together to show this wonderful truth of who God is and what he's done. In other words, he knows the truth of the word of God in a way that allowed him to teach and instruct and answer and challenge. More than that, notice he's not just quoting the odd isolated verse. He's not just using his favorite proof text as a way to win an argument or demolish another person's opinion. He knows the word, not just the words. He he knows the, the sweep of the story, not just the individual quotes. He knows the big picture direction it's all going in, not just the small picture details. And I point that out because I hope, I desperately hope that we here at St. Stephen's value the word of God, that we prioritize it and revere it, the one we're named after did, but as more than just head knowledge, as more than just a series of quotes that we can put on our lips at the appropriate time, knowing the facts and the figures. I worry that sometimes we can become experts in Bible knowledge, but we're not actually deepening our love for the Lord who spoke it. There's a subtle difference there. We can miss the wood for the trees. Stephen knew the wood. That's how he could speak in this kind of way. Stephen got it. He understood it. He knew not just the word, but the the one who brings the word by the Spirit. uh, Do we know the scriptures like Stephen did? I know for me personally, and this might be why I make a big deal of this, when I first became a, a Christian, this for me was the biggest problem I had. I didn't get the Bible. I tried to get it, but I couldn't get it. And I made about six or seven failed attempts to read through the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. Every time I go, this is the time. I'm doing it this time. And I'll read it all, and then I'll get to understand how it fits together. And I always gave up every single time, normally really quickly, about Leviticus. I don't think I got past Leviticus. Then someone, a well-meaning Christian friend, told me, you don't have to do that. The Bible's not a normal book like that. You don't have to read it cover to cover. You can just drop in at different parts and different selections. Brilliant. I can do that. Felt much better about it. But although there's truth to that, there's a problem with that. And the problem is, if you only ever do that, you don't know how it all fits together. 
You don't know the, the, the story sweeping through it. I didn't know that. I couldn't get it. I didn't know how what Moses did in the Old Testament fitted in with what Jesus did in the New Testament. I didn't know what it meant uh, about being an Israelite because I'm not. I'm a Gentile and what that happened. I didn't really understand anything about the prophets and I didn't know that 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel had basically ceased to be. I didn't know that the 66 different books in the Bible written by different authors at different periods of time is also one book written by one author telling one story. And it moves from creation, Genesis 1, to new creation, Revelation 22. From the garden in Genesis 3 through to the new city of God in Revelation 22. And that Jesus is at the heart of the whole story. And when you know the big picture, then you can plug in the bits. And not just as quotes, but understanding it within the whole. Understanding the context and the flow and the sweep of it. Then we can be like Stephen. Uh, I met with a few of the guys uh, yesterday morning. Uh, we've decided to meet every couple of weeks on a Saturday morning. We've decided to read a book by Vaughan Roberts called God's Big Picture. And if you're thinking, if you're sitting there this morning going, yeah, I don't really know that, that's a great book to read. God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts because it, it teaches how the Bible fits together so that when you look at the bits, you can understand it in the light of the whole. But do you see the great challenge and encouragement Stephen is for us for this morning? To know the word like that to be soaked in it so that it just kind of pours out of us. It's natural to meditate on it. And not meditate. Remember the difference between Christianity and Eastern religions meditation? When it comes to Eastern religion meditation, what you're supposed to do, the goal is to empty your mind. With, with Christianity and the Bible, it's always the opposite. It's to fill your mind with the word, to be soaked in it so that it comes out. Not just as quotes, but understanding the whole of it. Because when you understand the whole of it, then you'll see exactly how Jesus is the yes and amen to all of it. And then you'll have greater awe for him, greater thanks for him, greater love for him, greater devotion for him. That's why Stephen died, because he knew who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus meant, and that came before even his own life. So I pray that we'll have the same kind of attitude, same kind of attitude as Stephen that we're named after, because then we'll love the Lord Jesus all the more and live for him all the more. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity over the two weeks to look at the person that our church was named after and what a privilege it is to be named after such a man. We thank you for his attitude, his love for your word because of a love for you, for the way that he saw that Jesus replaced the temple, fulfilled the law, that Jesus is the yes and amen in all your plans and purposes. And I pray that we will have a similar attitude. Please fill us with that desire. May it just spill out in our daily lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.